from being a popular, well-spoken statesman who had solved their problems, to a cowardly failure who caused the annexation of their country by a foreign power, the people of the Transvaal had a love-hate relationship with their leader. Even as South Africa later came to be, Afrikaners generally do not remember this man in any good light. But a lesser-known aspect of his presidency was the tolerance he displayed toward people who did not share his skin color and his open mind about religion. Welcome to another episode of the History Society. I'm Martin van Staden, your host, and this is the story of the relative liberalism of Thomas François Burgers, fourth president of the Transvaal. Thomas François Bergers became the state president of the Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic, or the South African Republic, at the youthful age of 38 on 1 July 1872. The South African Republic, better known as the Transvaal, was an intensely conservative place. About half as large as Texas is today, in 1873 the white population of the country stood at only around 29,000 out of a total population exceeding 100,000. Of those 29,000 whites, only around 6,000, all of them men, had the franchise. Burgers won the 1872 election with 2,964 votes against the 388 votes of his opponent, William Robinson. Robinson was sponsored by what the Transvaal paper, the Folkstem, referred to as the Reactionary Party in the legislature, which included the more well-known future state president, the Zealot Paul Kreer, the acting president, Daniel Erasmus, and N.J. Grobler. The Zuid-Afrikaan, a Cape Town-based newspaper, summed up the underlying religious dimensions of the election as follows, translated from Dutch. On the one hand, Reverend Burgers is supported by the Liberal State Church, and on the other hand, Mr. Robinson is supported by the Dutch Reformed Church and the Postmanian or Breakaway groups. Summing up the nature of the denominations of Dutch Reformed Churches amongst the Afrikaners at the time or even today would be too difficult for a single podcast. But briefly, the State Church of the Transvaal was the Nederdeets Hervorm de Kerk, or NHK, a group that broke away from the Cape-based Nederdeutsch Gereformeerde Kerk, or NGK. In English, both these names translate to Dutch Reformed Church. A third group, the Gereformeerde Kerke, or Reformed Churches, known as the Doppers, also broke away from the NHK. The NHK State Church was evidently considered more moderate at the time than the NGK, or Doppers, who supported Berger's opponents. It is interesting to note that today the roles are somewhat reversed, with the NHK being considered more conservative than the other two groups. All three churches still exist today. These two more conservative churches at the time considered burghers to be too liberal and verlicht, or enlightened, on church doctrine. Burgers himself was a professional reverend who had a falling out years prior with the NGK when he was still living in Hanover in the Cape Colony. The Zeit Afrikaan, who asked Transfallers to oppose burghers in the election, wrote in Dutch that if you want to destroy a realm, 
you should put a non-believer on the throne, a non-believer who wants to rip away the support of Christians from under our feet for all eternity, so that there remains no foundation to stand upon and to build. After Berger's won the election, a preacher from the Dopper Church wrote in Dutch in the Zuid-Afrikaan, Woe to the people whose king is a child, to the people who are overthrown by an apostate priest. Despite the poor turnout at the election itself, the citizens of the Transvaal were ecstatic about their new president. In fact, even the people of the Cape Colony and the Orange Free State, which was the Transvaal's sister republic, celebrated as Berger's entourage traveled through their territory from his home in Hanover to Pretoria in the Transvaal. Celebrations in Pretoria began on 27 May of that year, almost two months before he was finally sworn in as president. So happy were the, the citizens of the Transvaal at this election. It was on his arrival in Pretoria to thousands of supporters that he saw one banner decorated by a blue flag with a diagonal red cross. In the middle of the cross was the year 1836, the day the Great Track began when thousands of Afrikaners left the British-controlled Cape Colony and moved into the interior of Southern Africa to establish their own independent republics, of which the Transvaal was the biggest. This flag, which Burgers and others was convinced was the flag used by the Afrikaner pioneers, or Voortrakkers, when they undertook the Great Track, would cause trouble later in his presidency. On his arrival at the podium in Pretoria, he pledged his belief in God, shocking many. The paper, Het Volksblad, referred to it as an electric shock. So powerful was the propaganda around Bergeris' lack of religiosity that many were taken aback to discover that he was, in many ways, a devout Christian. But this should not surprise us, as any more liberal shade of Christianity would have been alien to the very conservative population of the Transvaal. When he was sworn in days later as the fourth state president of the Transvaal, one of his primary opponents, Paul Creer, famously told the new president that he would support him despite his most fervent attempts to keep Burgers out of office, hoping that he would discover Burgers to be more re uh, religious than Creer had initially thought. Now, at the age of 38, the young Burgers stood at the head of a fledgling republic. His physician, who took care of Burgers in the last days of his life, described the young man as follows, translated from Dutch. Burgers was an exceptionally clean man. He was a larger man than the average, with gorgeous blonde hair, a rich beard rosy of color, and eyes blue with a lust for life, which never failed to make a pleasant and lasting impression. He was described as an idealist, an infectious optimist, enchanting, inspiring, approachable, determined, and friendly. Above all, and this is continuously emphasized by his biographer, Burgers was incredibly well-spoken and hence irresistibly persuasive in many respects, which benefited him hugely during his presidency. But his idealistic optimism would later cause him much disappointment, given the simple fact of the stubborn conservative society over which he presided. Burgers jumped to work immediately. The various things he undertook will be a subject of a separate podcast about his presidency generally, but his relationship with the mostly English gold prospectors who had recently arrived in the Transvaal is worth mentioning first. 
Birgiris knew that having a healthy relationship with the prospectors would mean a healthy relationship with the British Empire. In his report to the Volksrat, or the state legislature, in late 1873, Bergeris wrote in Dutch that, quote, under liberal government, the diggers will behave loyally, close quote. As a result, he appointed the American, Walter MacDonald, as the gold commissioner and instituted various services like a post service and transportation between towns. That same year, he also wrote to the state secretary that the prospectors were very satisfied and welcomed what he called their liberal government. In the Transvaal, Landrosts, or magistrates, were popularly elected. These officials were not only civil servants who performed a variety of government tasks, but also judges in disputes. That such a position would be elected did not sit well with Bergers, particularly where magistrates were chosen with a slim electoral majority. Thus, Bergers ran into one of his first great disappointments. When he tried to change the magistrate from an elected position to a position appointed by the presumably impartial central government, the legislature put the question to the citizens, who resoundly rejected it. They would not tolerate the abolition of an established tradition of this kind. Where Bergers did see some success, at least temporarily, was in rationalizing the military. The Transvaal government was, prior, during, and after the Burgers' presidency, an incredibly poor institution with little money to its name. Burgers sought to cut costs radically as a result. The military was not a traditional standing military like we would understand it today. Instead, the Transvaal had a commando system whereby citizens in a field cornetcy would elect a field cornet and from the various field cornetcies would be a chosen commandant who presided over a district. At the central government level was a commandant general. In times of war, the field cornets would assemble the local citizens in their area and start forming a commando, which would eventually be under the command of the commandant of that district. Field cornets were also part-time police officers. Because of the desire to save money, Bergers proposed abolishing the post of Commandant General during peacetime. The legislature accepted the pr proposal, and with that also abolished the position of Commandant during peacetime, leaving only field cornets. This no doubt saved the government money, but it led to an administrative nightmare whereby field cornets had nobody to report to. Although it is beyond the scope of this podcast, this undermining of the military structure also put the Transvaal at a disadvantage during the later Sekukuni War of 1876. But Bergeris compensated for the administrative weakening of the military by acquiring new armaments, particularly cannons, for the artillery. In doing so, he made the first attempt in the history of the Transvaal to establish a standing military. The state artillery would be mostly composed of volunteers, but Berger sought to also bring about a permanent corps under the supervision of uh, German military officer Otto Riedel. The state artillery at the time also was also given uniforms, whereas uniforms were previously unknown to the Transvaal military establishment. Bergeris was certainly a patriot and wanted to encourage a sense of patriotism amongst his people. To this end, in 1874, he undertook a controversial initiative to have some of the Transvaal's national symbols changed. 
he was an early pan-South-Africanist and envisioned a united or federated South Africa stretching from Table Mountain in the Cape Colony to the South Pan Mountain in the northern reaches of Transvaal. In an early address to a gathering in Cape Town in 1872, Berger said that a great future awaited this land if everyone who lived in it worked together toward a common welfare. He emphasized that talk of separate nationalities had to end, and he wanted a set of national symbols for the Transvaal that would be ready to one day represent the aspirations of all South Africans. As I previously alluded, Bergeris and others believed that the flag of the Voortrekkers was a blue banner with a red diagonal cross. He was persuaded of this fact by some of the oldest residents of the Transvaal, who themselves were part of the Great Track some 40 years earlier. Bergeris thus wanted to change the flag from the well-known Vierkler, or Four Colors, banner we associate with the Transvaal today, to this Voortrekker flag. In October 1874, the legislature adopted Bergeris's new flag and coat of arms by 20 votes to 4. But the opposition did not let it lie and undertook a huge propaganda campaign against the changes. In April 1875, Bergeris had to leave for a state visit to Europe, primarily to secure a loan for an ambitious railway project to Mozambique. What happened in his absence soon after he achieved victory in his quest to adopt unifying symbols for the Transvaal would once again cause him grave disappointment. In May of that year, with Bergeris scarcely away, the legislature reversed its decision and restored the old flag and coat of arms by 11 votes to 8. It is worth reading a substantial extract from a letter Bergeris wrote to Pitubar, the acting president in his absence, translated from Dutch. It read as follows, that our legislators allow themselves to be thrown back and forth like dry straw will be a death blow to our country. I am asked here from all sides, what security can I give that the Volksraad will not revoke a loan decision, etc., one day, and I do not know what to answer. It is a great pity. Ordinary politeness would have demanded that people had waited to try the case until I am at home. I would like to emphasize that I did not deserve the folks that are humiliating me in front of the civilized world. Thank God I can bear my grief. Pierre Bergers, to my mind, was expressing a latent concern for what we today know as the rule of law. He had sponsored a change in law and had it adopted following proper constitutional procedure. But not a month later, when he was absent and not available to, to defend any further attacks on his reforms, the legislature reversed its decision. Like the jurist Bruno Leone would point out almost a century later, the legal certainty we speak of when we defend the rule of law is not limited to clarity in legislation, but also means the law must not change on a whim, overnight, or repeatedly. Bergeris felt the frustration that came with having such an ill-disciplined legislature that could be swayed on a whim like this, and it rightly concerned him that other, more mature nations would not want to do business with the Transvaal if binding decisions could be so easily reversed or reneged on. The legislature, thinking they were doing Bergeris a favor, declared the new flag, or the old flag now again, <laughs> to be the presidential standard that will fly alongside the national flag, the Vierkler, where the president is present. 
but Berger is having embarked on this initiative precisely to foster national unity and perhaps prepare the soil for a federated South Africa, rejected this idea, saying that the president's flag must also be the flag of his people. But Bergeris did not fail entirely. The tune you heard earlier was the Transvaal national anthem, Kent dat Volk, or No Die the People. While in Europe, Bergeris commissioned the Netherlander Katharina van Ries to write a national anthem. Bergeris knew van Ries from his student days at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. The lyrics of the anthem describe the people of the Transvaal as heroic, despite having been oppressed for years. The brave Transvaalers, who had offered property and blood for freedom and for righteousness, deserved praise. The anthem asked the listener whether they knew these people, this folk, who were from this little country so unknown by those around the world. It proudly declared that these people who had suffered but triumphed were a free people. One of Bergeris's major attempted reforms that caused immense unpopularity was his education bill, which he wrote himself. While this reform was wide-ranging and multifaceted, I will focus only on the religious aspect of it. The bill was published in the government newspaper on 4 February 1874 for public comment, and that is where it was resoundingly rejected. Section 26 of the bill provided, in Dutch, and I quote, no religious education will be given during school hours. However, the school premises, outside of school hours, will be available for this purpose for religious teachers and educators, with the approval of school committees. Quote. This provision caused some uncertainty, which Bergeris clarified in Europe during his 1876 visit. He said that he did not want to allow the Bible in school under any circumstances. Now do not forget that Bergeris was a theologian and devout Christian, so do not confuse this sentiment for anti-religiosity. To his European audience, he said in Dutch, and I quote, The holy book does not belong in the house where science is taught. It does not belong in the school or in the temple of science, but it belongs at the holy house altar where we worship our God. He was no doubt a Christian, but certainly a peculiar Christian. In a letter he wrote to his daughter much later, in 1880, he wrote in English, quote, Do not make an idol of the Bible, but use it as an old necklace made of very ordinary material, but nevertheless full of gems of the highest order. It is a vessel containing chaff and grain mixed. Pick the grain for yourself, close quote. To Bergeris, the purpose of religion was to prepare people for their earthly existence, which must be characterized by striving for justice, truth, and charity. His letter continued, quote, Remember, we have no more right to claim or hope for a future life than a dog or a horse. If God thinks fit, he will grant us that life. Our object must be to do good whether there is a future life or not. Beware of idols. Worship no man, not even Jesus, but love and do good to all God's creatures, even if it be a devil. A very peculiar Christian indeed. <laughs> Another provision in the education bill provided that no teacher may engage in any activity that conflicts with the respect owed to the religious convictions of dissenters. 
and the initial draft of the bill also said that there was no requirement for a teacher to be a member of any church, not even the state church. Bergeris was evidently a committed secularist, but in the frontier republic composed of people who owed their sanity and much of their sense of community to their religion. As his biographer notes, Bergeris was certainly out of touch with the religious convictions of Transvaalers, as these people were not nearly emotionally ready to accept such uh, secular, secularism in their traditional school system. One of Bergeris' major opponents, the zealot Paul Krier, said in the Volksrat that the Bible was the foundation for the education of children, especially in the school context. So with such dissent in the legislature, a commission of inquiry was appointed to consider the bill. On 23 October 1874, the commission returned a generally favorable verdict on most aspects of the bill, none of which I have discussed, but proposed certain amendments. Keeping the Bible out of school was obviously rejected and replaced with a requirement that there be Bible studies in every school instead. The provision allowing teachers not to be members of a church was replaced again with a requirement that teachers be a member of a recognized Protestant church, although not necessarily the state church. In a memorandum he wrote in defense of his presidency after leaving office, Bergeris condemned, in English, the quote, extreme orthodox party led by his chief opponent Paul Krier that unraveled his plans for a quote, free and secular education. Bergeris therefore failed to bring complete secularism to education in the Transvaal. But it is important to note that there had never been uh, dogmatic religious indoctrination in the Transvaal schooling system, and that this was retained in the bill. Bergeris was, however, successful in sponsoring the first ever comprehensive education law in the history of the Republic. Perhaps the most liberal aspect of this reform was uh, that was successfully brought into operation was that the executive council of the Transvaal, which is the which was the executive government, was no longer primarily responsible for education. The state would continue to support the schools, but primary its primary responsibility would fall to the respective local school committee and superintendent. But after the amended bill became law, Bergeris could never shake the perception amongst his people that he was irreligious. This event even led to a mini-great track out of the Transvaal by thousands of the most conservative citizens. This was called the Dorsland Track, or First Land Track. The Dorsland trackers moved into what is today the arid Botswana and Namibian deserts, where the name got its reference to first. Many went as far north as Angola. The last of their descendants only returned to South Africa in 1975, at the outbreak of the Angolan Civil War. To set his people at ease, and this did work to an extent, Berger sponsored a constitutional amendment that clarified and re-entrenched the religious freedom of citizens, guaranteeing that government would not interfere or undermine that right. But it is now worth finally moving on to Bergeris's comparative liberalism on racial issues. On 1 August 1873, Demand Bude, the official newspaper of the conservative Dopper Church, condemned in Dutch, and I quote, 
the irreligiosity of the government, the complete liberation of the colored and other inconsistent laws, close quote. What they condemned about the apparent liberation of non-whites was in reference to the Pass Act of 1873, which many citizens regarded as bestowing, quote, improper freedom and equality on blacks. While Bergeris did not have a hand in drafting the Pass Act, he did sign it into law, and I am not aware of him having objected to it. The Act required blacks to acquire passes, a precursor to the more well-known pass system of apartheid South Africa, but the notable aspect uh, of the Transvaal pass system was that the pass for the first time bestowed upon holders the protection of the laws of the land and thereby recognized their civil rights. It is unclear to what extent this actually manifested in reality, but it was at least a formal or official indication that blacks were being recognized as legal subjects. Because of this aspect of the Pass Act, Bergeris was again accused of liberalism by his opponents. The Pass Act and its passes, the critics alleged, gave blacks improper freedom of movement by enabling them to be uh, insubordinate towards their employers. Later, in November 1874, a commission of inquiry recommended that blacks should be required to pay a yearly pass tax of five pounds to ensure that passes aren't uh, easily acquired and as a result that blacks remained on their employer's premises rather than out and about. Bergeris objected to this, referring to it as a skruent onrachvaardige or incredibly unfair measure. The reason he uh, regarded it as unfair was because white vagabonds were only fined 10 shillings. A shilling was one twentieth of a pound. Thus, whites were punished with a fraction of how blacks were punished for what, is, what was, in effect, the same offense. Bergeris noted that this would effectively amount to slavery, because very few blacks would be able to pay these taxes. He noted that forced labor is the most expensive kind of labor, implying that the economy of the Transvaal would also suffer under the new tax. Bergeris also knew that there were perceptions that slavery still existed in the Transvaal and that the British Empire might use this as a pretext for invading or otherwise interfering in the business of the Republic. Thus, he warned his fellows that treating blacks unfairly would also threaten the very sovereignty that they prized so highly. Bergeris's agenda was to bring his backward Republic onto par with the civilized world. He was aware that his fellow citizens would not share his enlightened view of race relations, but persisted with some reforms nonetheless, particularly in light of his realization that Britain would want to intervene if things did not change at all. In 1875, while in Europe, Bergeris presented a memorandum on his vision for blacks in the Transvaal to Lord Henry Carnavon, the colonial secretary in London. The memorandum was in Dutch. These are some of the highlights. Bergeris opposed the system of forced labor in the Transvaal, uh, which was being imposed on blacks. He thought that continuing to enforce labor would lead to blacks feeling alienated from Transvaal society and would eventually lead to violence. He did not want immediate equality between races like in the Cape Colony. He thought this would be bad for both blacks and for whites, but did not go into detail as to why. Instead, he recommended a so-called middle way.
this middle way, according to Berger's, meant that in the future, black and white would have equal rights. But this would be achieved progressively by bestowing more rights on employed blacks as time went past. This meant there should be a proper payment of wages system and that the wages themselves should be fair. Perhaps most notably of all, Berger supported recognizing the rights of blacks to own private property, specifically land. Berger's believed that one of the main causes of primitiveness amongst blacks was because they could not own property in the Western sense. In this respect, he emphasized that blacks had to come to appreciate the difference between personal property and private property, and this will get rid of laziness and other undesirable traits. Berger said that field cornets, the elected part-time police officers, should have no jurisdiction over blacks, because blacks did not participate in electing them. Another important point was that Bergers wanted to legalize firearm ownership amongst blacks, but only for those who were employed. Finally, Bergers supported bestowing full voting rights on blacks who had been employed for more than seven years and who owned property worth at least 200 pounds. Now, by today's standards, these ideas do not come close to the classical liberal conception of natural rights, but for his time and his context, Berger stood head and shoulders above everyone else in his country as an enlightened statesman, and this would continue even uh, after he left office for about half a century. So fair was the Berger's administration towards blacks, of course within the context of the time, that certain members of the Volksrat testified in 1877 that government policy towards blacks was, quote, suicidically humane, close quote, and that this, would, and that this tolerance could eventually end up leading to war. Indeed, a Transvaal Commission of Inquiry rejected the uh, president's ideas quite predictably, instead opting to stick to, a, to the more established system of discrimination. It disappointed Bergeris greatly that by the end of his presidency, no progress had been made in recognizing black property ownership. It is interesting to imagine that had Bergeris lived longer and had he been a delegate representing the Transvaal at the South African National Convention in 1908, he would have been the only delegate from his country who might have supported extending the non-racial but qualified Cape franchise northwards. If Berger's presidency had an intellectual effect on his people, which it most assuredly did not, South Africa might have turned to non-racialism far sooner than it actually did in 1994. Berger's was driven from office for various reasons that will be covered in a more general episode that isn't focused on his relative liberalism. But one of the main reasons was the Sekukuni War that eventually led to the annexation of the Transvaal by the British Empire. The war was allowed to end in failure because Bergeris waited until the last possible moment before engaging in hostilities. He wanted peace uh, with his neighbors above all because he knew expansionism and war would threaten the prosperity and credit worthiness of his country. It also no doubt conflicted with his temperate, relatively tolerant and peaceful sentiments. Berger's youthful age also did not aid him that much. Almost from the beginning of his presidency, he was beset with difficulties surrounding his health. 
for several months at a time, but Gerisi was bedridden despite this, and against his doctor's wishes, he maintained a relatively high productivity rate for a statesman. In a letter dated 2 February 1874, he wrote to his wife Mary in English, because she was Scottish, quote, From my letters you will have seen that instead of resting I am constantly traveling about. I feel it is too much for me, but rather will I work myself to death than let it be said I neglected my duty. Close quote. His extreme stress, no doubt mostly the result of attempting to push for reforms that his conservative countrymen would never entertain, did not do him any favors. I do not think he was ever beset with anger at his citizens, but was caught in an almost permanent state of disappointment. Most of his attempts at modernization were rejected. For instance, his friendly overtures to foreign, mostly British prospectors in the Transvaal gold fields to try and win support for what he himself described as Transvaal's liberal government was repaid during the Sikukuni War with betrayal and subversion. The Afrikaners, initially quite friendly towards the British, would remember this betrayal and never quite learn to trust the British again. Further strife between these peoples in the decades after Bergeris' term uh, are well known to history, and the Afrikaners and the English who remained after Brit Britain's withdrawal from South Africa perhaps only really came to regard one another in a positive light in the late 20th century. Neither the Transvaalers nor the Britons temporarily living there were prepared to accompany Bergeris on the journey to bring the Transvaal fully into the western fold. In the memorandum he wrote in defense of his presidency, Bergeris made reference to the fact that he was considered complicit in the annexation of the Transvaal by the British. This will be addressed in another podcast, but his concluding remarks are worth mentioning here. This memorandum was written in English. Bergeris wrote, quote, In one respect, and in only one, can the Friends of Liberty reconcile themselves to and excuse such an act as the destruction of a small, free, and inoffensive republic. That is, that such acts invariably bring the very opposite result of those intended. South Africa has gained more from this, and has made a larger step forward in the march of freedom than most people can perceive. The liberal Sikli Bergeris died on 9 December 1881 only aged 47. Obviously, when I described the former president of the South African Republic as liberal, I mean liberal not only for his time, but also for his circumstances. The Transvaal was a pastoral frontier society that consisted almost to a man of extremely conservative Calvinistic patriarchs who would not even hear of any notion of equality between the races or even between men and women. Bergeris was by no means a 2020 San Francisco progressive or a 1950s Austrian classical liberal and by all accounts would today still be considered a racist. But we do history and ourselves particularly a disservice by analyzing everything through modern lenses. We rob ourselves of an opportunity to track the development and the regression of ideas and institutions. Thomas Francois Bergeris was a man way ahead of his time, and that is why both his presidency and likely his health failed. The goals he set for himself and his government 
would never have been readily accepted by his people. He was vilified after the Transvaal was annexed, and even today amongst historians and the Afrikaans community, Bergers occupies a minuscule space in the massive shadow of the Zealot Paul Kreer. But I think Bergers and his revolutionary ideas are worth remembering, nonetheless, so we can all gain an accurate picture of the history of what would later become South Africa. My source for this podcast has been the Afrikaans book, Thomas Francois Berger's Staatspresident 1872-1877 by Martinez Stefanis Apogrein, published by HAIM Eitgeverei in 1979. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Society podcast. I hope you found it illuminating. This is not the last time you'll be hearing about Thomas Bergers. As I alluded to throughout, there will be an episode or even a series of episodes on other aspects of his presidency. I am currently waiting for more sources to be delivered, and I am really itching to get into those. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon and following my social media pages as well as those of the History Society. All this information is provided in the description. Thank you and have a good one.